I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Americans love easy solutions to complex problems. Maybe that's why weight loss drugs like Wegovy are so popular. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. GLP-1 agonists like Ozempic, Manjaro, and Wegovy help people lose more weight than previous medications. Are there downsides? Today, part two of our two-part series about the benefits and risks of medications like Wegovy. We've invited two medical experts to share their different perspectives on strategies to overcome obesity. Today's guest is author of Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, a different view on medicines for obesity. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, COVID-19 infections can give rise to a wide range of conditions that persist long after the original infection is gone. Researchers wondered if using the antiviral medicine Paxlovid during the acute phase of COVID would reduce the likelihood of post-COVID conditions. To find out, they compared the health records of patients treated for COVID at the Veterans Health Administration in 2022. More than 9,500 were treated with Paxlovid. Their subsequent health problems were compared to those who did not receive Paxlovid, though they were similar in other ways. The investigators were disappointed to find that Paxlovid reduced the chance of only one type of complication, blood clots in the legs or in the lungs. Other post-COVID problems did not respond. The FDA recently issued a warning about contaminated eye drops. Inspectors found unsanitary conditions at a facility that makes 26 different types of OTC drops. This is not the first time eye drops have posed a problem. Last summer, dozens of Americans developed eye infections that were traced to contaminated eye drops. Some people suffered permanent loss of vision because of those infections. The FDA is now cautioning consumers to avoid lubricant eye drops under the brand name CVS Health, Leader, Rugby, Rite Aid, Target, Walmart, and Velocity Pharma. The agency warns that using contaminated lubricant eye drops could lead to eye infections, loss of vision, or even blindness. When people have coronary artery disease, doctors often prescribe statins to lower the likelihood of experiencing heart attacks, strokes, or early death. But which statin works best? A new study called Lodestar was just published in the BMJ. The Korean investigators compared atorvastatin with rosuvastatin. The brand names are Lipitor and Crestor, respectively. After three years, there was no difference between the two groups with respect to their chances of having a heart attack or stroke. There was, however, a difference with respect to side effects. Rosuvastatin, which lowered LDL cholesterol more than atorvastatin, also resulted in a higher risk of type 2 diabetes and cataracts. A very old and inexpensive diabetes medicine called metformin may have an unexpected benefit. A study published in JAMA Network Open found that people who stopped taking their metformin were more likely to develop dementia later. 
Researchers analyzed data from electronic health records at Kaiser Permanente. More than 12,000 individuals discontinued metformin and were matched to over 29,000 people who continued taking their anti-diabetes metformin. Those who dropped the drug were 21% more likely to be diagnosed with dementia during the subsequent five years. One conclusion is that metformin may be protective against dementia. In other research, investigators compared two ways of eating to see which one worked best to help people with type 2 diabetes lose weight. They assigned 75 volunteers into one of three groups. In one group, people ate only between noon and 8 p.m. The second group paid close attention to counting calories and reduced their usual intake by 25%. A third group did not change their eating behavior and served as controls. The researchers monitored blood sugar levels as well as weight and waist circumference during the six months of the study. Both of the groups who changed their eating patterns lowered their HbA1c levels during the study. That's a way of measuring blood sugar over a number of weeks. Those practicing time-restricted eating found it easier to follow the rules. Their weight loss was significant compared to the control group. The calorie counters, on the other hand, lost a modest amount of weight, not significant. When the thyroid gland produces too much or too little thyroid hormone, it can have profound effects on the body. A new study reinforces the importance of keeping thyroid hormone levels within the target range. The authors found that older people who had elevated levels of thyroid hormone due to hyperthyroidism or excessive levothyroxine were almost 40% more likely to be diagnosed with cognitive impairment. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Last week, we spoke with Dr. Jamie Art, Professor of Epidemiology and Prevention at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He's also President-elect of the Obesity Society. Dr. Art offered an optimistic view of medicines like Ozempic, Wegovy, and Manjaro. This is the second in a two-part series, giving you the lowdown on new medicines for treating obesity. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He specializes in the field of neuroendocrinology with an emphasis on the regulation of energy balance by the central nervous system. Dr. Lustig is the author of several books, including his most recent, Metabolical, the Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Rob Lustig. Thank you so much, Terry and Joe, for having me back yet again. Dr. Lustig, during your career, which is long and distinguished, you have treated people, especially children, who have had obesity. What, what are the consequences of excess weight for both children and adults? Okay. Well, now now we're getting down into the weeds. When you say excess weight, obviously, obesity is excess weight, but obesity is not actually the problem. 
metabolic dysfunction is the problem. So let's let's take that apart. And this is actually very important that uh, for the rest of this discussion. There are actually three fat depots we need to be concerned about. Three places where the body stores fat. Now, the first one, the big one, the one everybody notices, the one that doesn't look so good in a bathing suit, that's called subcutaneous fat, or if we if you want big butt fat, as in does this bathing suit make me look fat? Fat, that fat. Um, that fat is actually metabolically protective. That's where your body wants to put excess energy. So while it may be cosmetically undesirable, from a metabolic standpoint, it's actually inert. It's what your body wants to do with fat. Now, how many pounds of excess big butt fat do you have to gain before you start developing metabolic problems? About 22, about 10 kilos or 22 pounds. So you can put on a fair amount of weight before you will show signs of metabolic decompensation. And of course, those metabolic decompensations, you know, can result in type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and fatty liver disease and ultimately put you at risk for cancer and dementia and many, many other different uh, problems. The second fat depot is called visceral or big belly fat. Now, that fat is much more metabolically active and that's fat you don't want. But what causes that fat is stress. That fat is not due to calories or diet. That fat is due to stress. And the reason we know that is because people who are clinically depressed, who are losing weight because they don't want to eat because they are anhedonic, that they don't have any interest in eating because they're even suicidal and have to sometimes be admitted to the hospital to save them from themselves. When you stick them in an MRI scanner, they actually have increased visceral fat. They're losing subcutaneous fat and they're gaining visceral fat. Now, how many pounds of visceral fat do you have to gain before you become metabolically unhealthy? About five. So 22 pounds for the subcutaneous fat, only about five pounds for the visceral fat. And then finally, the third fat depot and perhaps the most important fat depot, the liver, liver fat. Now, the liver is not supposed to store fat, but now today, 45% of the entire US population has fatty liver disease. And that fatty liver is actually causing all sorts of hormonal imbalances. It is the primary reason for type two diabetes, because when your liver stores fat, the insulin that comes from your pancreas can't do its job. When your insulin can't do its job, then your blood glucose rises and you have type 2 diabetes. Now, how many pounds of liver fat can you store before you become metabolically ill? A half a pound. So 22 pounds for subcutaneous fat, five pounds for visceral fat, a half a pound for liver fat. And everyone in America today has liver fat. So when you say, what does excess weight do? You have to qualify it as to which weight are we talking about. So I think that's really important for people to understand. And I think in the three minutes we have before the break, 
we need to understand what are the health consequences when somebody has more than five pounds of liver fat and no, no, more no, than half a pound more, of liver fat. When someone has more than half a pound of liver fat and more than five pounds of visceral fat. Health consequences, please? Yes, absolutely. So that's where the metabolic dysfunction comes in. So when you have either liver or visceral fat, you have this phenomenon called insulin resistance. Insulin, of course, is the energy storage hormone. Insulin is the driver of energy into fat cells in the first place. No insulin, no fat. More insulin, more fat. Ask any type 1 diabetic who starts taking insulin shots what happens to their weight and what happens to their fat depots. So insulin is the driver. Turns out insulin is also the bad guy in terms of metabolic dysfunction because insulin causes growth when it shouldn't. It causes growth of the coronary arteries, leading you to risk for heart attack. It causes growth of various glandular tissues, which can lead to prostate and breast cancer or pancreatic cancer. It can cause changes in the vascular uh, tree in the brain, ultimately leading to dementia. It can specifically drive the changes in the uh, neurons that lead to Alzheimer's disease. It can cause a num numerous problems that we are now suffering from as a uh, country and really globally across the world uh, in a big way. And it's because of this phenomenon called insulin resistance. And yes, obesity is related to insulin resistance, of course, that's true. But there are plenty of obese people who are insulin sensitive, and there are plenty of normal weight people who are insulin resistant. So while obesity is a risk factor for all of these chronic metabolic diseases, it's not the cause. Dr. Lustig, I'm thinking about the statistic you just gave us that 45% of the U.S. population has fatty liver disease. Presumably most of that is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Correct. I'm thinking about the fact that that hasn't always been the case. So I'm also thinking about the previous conversations you and we have had about the problems with sugar. Is that the reason why there's been such an alarming increase in metabolic dysfunction since 1975? Exactly right, Terry. So the question is, if the fat, if the liver is not supposed to store fat, how did the fat get there? Now, the uninitiated, you know, the novices would say, well, you know, it's the fat you eat. Actually, it's not the fat you eat. The fat you eat passes through the liver just fine. It gets turned into a uh, molecule that you've heard about a zillion times. It's called LDL. LDL is not completely benign. LDL can be a harbinger of cardiovascular disease. I don't argue that. People with very high LDL levels need to see their doctor. Um, it's likely they will get put on a statin uh, in order to lower their LDL levels in order to prevent heart disease. Well, the fat you eat ends up as LDL. That is not the fat in the liver. The fat in the liver is triglyceride. The fat in the liver is VL 
LDL, or very low density lipoproteins, and it is primarily triglyceride. Now, the question is, how did the triglyceride get there? Did that come from your food? It turns out not at all. That fat, that triglyceride, was actually made in the liver directly. The liver actually turned something into fat, and that something is either one of two items. Alcohol, and that's what, if you had fatty liver before 1980, that was the reason. If you saw fat uh, in the liver on a microscopic slide, you know, from a liver biopsy, that was an alcoholic up to 1980. And then in 1980, we discovered that there was this new version and we called it non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Well, for the last 40 years, we've been chasing that down to try to figure out what is the source, what is the cause of that fat? And the answer is sugar. Sugar gets turned into fat in the liver, and it gets turned specifically into that triglyceride. Now, some of that VLDL that the triglyceride makes will make it out, and that could ultimately be a substrate for obesity and heart disease too. But a lot of it will precipitate right there in the liver, and now you've got fatty liver disease, now you've got insulin resistance, now you've got metabolic dysfunction, now you've got risk for all of those chronic metabolic diseases we talked about at the beginning. You're listening to Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. His research and clinical practice has focused on childhood obesity and diabetes. Dr. Lustig is the author of several books, including the most recent, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. After the break, we'll learn more about the GLP-1 agonists like Otsempic or Wegovi. What are the pros and cons of these drugs? In particular, what happens when people stop taking them? Dr. Lustig is a big advocate for eating real food. How would that change the metabolic dysfunction that leads to obesity? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a special blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. It supports five areas of brain performance in one capsule. 
More information at cocovia.com. Today, we are reviewing the benefits and risks of the very popular GLP-1 drugs being used for weight loss. Last week, we focused on the benefits of Wegovi and Manjaro. This week, our guest has a different perspective. Dr. Robert Lustig is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. His most recent book is Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. So, Dr. Lustig, the pharmaceutical industry now believes and a great many of your colleagues seem to agree that they've come up with the solution, the answer to the problem. These new drugs, yes, you can tell people what a GLP-1 receptor agonist is, glucagon-like like peptide-1, peptide yes, that's yes. right. And so these drugs are being hailed as the answer to obesity. And not only that, they can control blood sugar. They can reduce cardiovascular risk. They may limit cravings for cigarettes or alcohol. It's like the miracle medicine of all time. And the only downside is they're kind of pricey, like about $1,200 a month. Well, it really sounds well, too good to be true. Um, it is true. It is true that GLP-1 receptor analogs are a big step forward. And I don't argue that. I actually applaud that. It is really, for the first time, something that actually works. And I'm not downgrading it, but like everything, like everything in medicine that comes with a downside, okay, there is a lot of baggage here that we have to piece out and dissect in order for the, your uh, audience to be able to understand exactly what these medicines do, what they don't do, what they put you at risk for, and whether or not these are actually a good idea for you. Not necessarily for you know someone else, but for you. And I need to say, we are talking about semaglutide. We are talking yes. about Ozempic. We are talking about Wegovi. Now, Ozempic yes. was approved for diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Wegovi was approved for obesity, and there are others as well. In the yeah. in the same category, we have terzepatide, which is called Mounjaro. And that's about to get approval from the FDA for obesity as well. So tell us the pros and the cons of these now hard-to-get drugs because they are in short supply. They are very expensive. And right now there is a tremendous social disparity because everyone in Hollywood can get them because they can afford them and no one else can. And that seems a little bit, you know, preposterous, but there we are. They cost about $1,300 a month right now. So if everyone in America who qualified for any one of these three drugs actually got them, that would be $2.1 trillion to our healthcare system. Well, our healthcare system is $4.1 trillion, so that would be a 50% increase. We can't afford the healthcare system we have now. How are we going to afford a 50% surcharge on top of that? Having said that, money is not the only problem here. 
So let's discuss exactly what do these medicines do? Well, they do two things. The first thing they do is they go to the pancreas and they cause the pancreas to kick out a little extra insulin and that will lower blood glucose. And that's why Ozempic is a treatment for diabetes. The other thing that it does, which seems to be even more relevant, is it goes to the brain and it binds to receptors in the brain stem. And basically what that information tells the brain is, hey, I've eaten. I don't need to eat again. It's part of the satiety signal. Now, this is a normal phenomenon that occurs regularly in everyone. You eat, your intestine makes GLP-1, and it goes into the bloodstream, goes to your pancreas, makes it kick out some more insulin, goes to the brain and tells your brain, okay, I'm full. It's part of the satiety signal. But clearly some people don't get that signal as well as others. Now, we've looked for people with GLP-1 deficiency, haven't found them. So that's we're not treating a deficiency here. But giving extra GLP-1 analog can make people think that they've eaten. And so they will slow down and reduce their food intake. Now, that sounds like a great thing. And it will ultimately predispose to weight loss. And people who are on Ozempic and Wagobi can lose up to 16% of their weight. And that is significant. And it's really the first time we've been able to do that. So again, I applaud these drugs. I'm not against them. However, let's think about what that 16% of weight loss is. When you stick people into the DEXA scanner to look at body composition analysis, you have lost as much muscle as you have fat. In other words, Ozempic and Wagovi and Munjaro are working by inducing starvation. In starvation, you lose equal amounts of fat and muscle. The goal is not to lose muscle. The goal is to lose fat. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we say exercise is to maintain your muscle, especially while you're losing weight. Ask any little old lady if she would like a little extra muscle just before she breaks her hip, all right? And if you've read, you know, numerous articles and reports, and if you read Peter Atiyah's book, Outlive, you will know that maintaining your muscle mass is extraordinarily important for longevity. Well, these drugs don't do it. These drugs actually make you lose muscle mass. This is not necessarily a good thing. So there's a little robbing Peter to pay Paul here. You can't dissociate the satiety effect from the starvation effect and the starvation effect from the loss of muscle mass. That's not great. So that's one problem. Second problem, these uh, medicines also work by slowing gastric emptying. So if your stomach isn't emptying as fast, then it seems full longer, so you seem less hungry. Now, that sounds like a good idea too, except that numerous people have actually had significant GI complications. And I have just read an article about, I 
case study of patients with gastroparesis, that is, that their stomach doesn't move at all. And it's not just because of the medicine, so you take away a medicine away, and it's still there. Six to 12 months later, you still have gastroparesis. Now, we don't know who's at risk for that. We don't know, you know whether any individual patient would get that or not. That is a really bad complication. It also causes nausea. It causes vomiting, as if you basically overstuffed someone who'd already eaten. That's, that's how it works. Um, it can cause pancreatitis. An earlier version of a GLP-1 analog called exenatide was linked with pancreatic cancer. We haven't had these drugs long enough to be able to see that signal yet. So. This is not exactly a completely benign drug. It's not like, oh, this is the magic bullet, weight loss, and you're done. There's stuff going on. And one more thing. Yes. When you stop these drugs, what happens? The weight comes rushing back. And the reason is because you actually haven't fixed the problem. You have band-aided the problem. You have bypassed the problem. The problem the metabolic dysfunction is actually still there. And so when the drugs stop, all the weight comes rushing back, and in some cases, plus some. So you might have to be on these medicines the rest of your life at $1,300 a month. Now, that's not such a good deal either. And then lastly, you mentioned, Joe, that some people are actually taking these drugs and are finding that their addictions are getting better. Their cravings for alcohol and for street drugs are getting better. And this is extraordinarily interesting and absolutely needs to be researched, evaluated, and perhaps this will end up being a significant addition to the addiction medicine armamentarium. And again, I'm not against it, I'm for it. However, there have been now numerous case studies and now a cohort of study that shows that patients on these medicines, because of the change in the reward system, can develop severe depression and suicidal ideation. Now, I don't know if you guys are, you know, can remember back to 2006, so 17 years ago, there was a drug that was approved in Europe the drug was named Romanabant. The trade name was Accomplia. And it was a huge weight loss giant. And everybody wanted it. And what it was, was it was an anti-marijuana drug. It bound to the endocannabinoid receptor in the brain. And what it did was it reduced interest in food. Well, it also reduced interest in everything these patients became severely depressed and there were numerous cases of suicide. And ultimately, the European Food Safety Administration, the European Drug Administration had to pull the drug. It never got approved here in the United States. So playing with the reward system sounds like a good idea, but it can have really disastrous consequences. So we need to know a lot more about what these drugs do and in whom before we can just sort of apportion them out willy-nilly. Dr. Lustig, 
We have spoken with you before, and when we have, you have suggested that we all need to pay much more attention to eating real food. Can you tell us how that would affect metabolic dysfunction? Indeed, I would be delighted. (laughs) So, what is real food? (laughs) So, let's define it. That is food that came out of the ground or animals that ate the food that came out of the ground. That's real food. If it went to a plant, okay, it, it's not real food. Uh, if it has a label on it, that means that something's been done to it. Now, by a plant, you mean a factory? I mean a factory. That's right. Okay. I'm sorry. Let's, yes, let's be uh, clear. Uh, if it went to a you know food manufacturing plant, it's not real food. All real food is naked. It doesn't have a label. Okay, if it has a label, it's a warning label. It means something's been done to it. And so you need to understand that that's what we're talking about here. Now, what does ultra-processed food do? By the way, 73% of the items in the grocery store are ultra-processed food. 57% of the food that we eat is ultra-processed food. Uh, Chris Van Tulliken in Europe just published a book called Ultra-Processed People. Indeed, that's what we are. Uh, So the question is, what does that do? The answer is, it is the driver of this chronic metabolic disease. And the reason is because it interferes with the function of the mitochondria. Now, the mitochondria, for those of you who don't remember your 10th grade biology, they are the little powerhouses of each cell that generate the chemical energy that the cell runs on to do its job. When the energy runs out, the cell dies. So those mitochondria are pretty important. Well, it turns out those mitochondria are actually very fragile, and there are different compounds that can interfere with that mitochondrial functioning. Some of it's in the food, some of it's in the food packaging, some of it's in the air, some of it's in the water, some of it's in the plastics, some of it's in the cosmetics, some of it's in the hair dye you use. The bottom line is we have a metabolic catastrophe because our mitochondria are under assault nonstop. Now, How do you fix that? Well, a lot of the things are baked into the cake. Like for instance, I'll give you an example of a a compound that's baked into the cake. PFAS, polyfluorated alkylated substances. Okay, the most common of which, the one that you've all remember very well, Teflon. Go see the movie Dark Waters. You will learn everything you need to know about Teflon. Well, Teflon turns out to have been a mitochondrial toxin. Teflon is still around, even though it's been removed from all um, cooking surfaces. It is still around because it is a forever chemical. We will never get rid of it. Same with DDT. DDT was the first insecticide. We stopped using DDT in 1972. But you can measure the metabolite of DDT, called DDE, in the urine of pregnant women, and that level correlates 
with obesity in their newborn in their uh, offspring at age five and age ten. So these we can't do anything about; they're with us. But the big one, the big thing that causes mitochondrial dysfunction, the thing we could do something about, the thing that is in all of our food, sugar. Sugar is a direct mitochondrial toxin. Sugar causes three separate enzymes in the mitochondria to be dysfunctional. I can name them. Your audience can look them up. One is called AMP kinase, which is the fuel gauge on the liver cell. The second one is called acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, or ACAD-L. It is the enzyme that cleaves fats into two carbon fragments so that they can be burned to make ATP. And the third one is called CPT1 or carnitine palmitoyltransferase transferase one, which is the shuttle mechanism to get fats into the mitochondria in the first place. So if you have defective mitochondria, number one, you're not making energy. Your cells are starving. You're going to eat more in an attempt to try to undo that. And second, you're going to make fat. And you're going to make fat in places you shouldn't, like your liver. And now you've got chronic metabolic disease. So our current environment is driving this phenomenon. How can you undo that? Well, real food. Because ultra-processed food is very high sugar and very low fiber. And fiber actually is necessary to reduce the inflammation that would occur because the bacteria in your gut are unhappy with the food that you ate because that's the food they eat too. You're listening to Dr. Robert Lustig, author of Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. After the break, we'll explore the implications of real food. Does that put all the responsibility on the consumer? What about people in food deserts? They could have a hard time getting real food. We do worry about some of the side effects of GLP-1 agonists. Dr. Lustig also addresses drug effectiveness. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. Cocoa flavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code PPOD15. Learn more at Cocovia. And remember, that discount code is PPOD15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. 
Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both convenient capsule and powder formats, with each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information at cocovia.com. It's estimated that more than 40% of Americans are officially obese. No wonder, then, that drugs to help people lose weight have become very popular. Last week, we focused on the benefits of medications like Ozempic, Wegovy, and Monjaro. Today, we're looking at some of the downsides. Our guest is Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. His most recent book is Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Dr. Lustig, I get the idea of real food, carrots and apples, you know, uh, chicken and fish. That's real food. But what I'm wondering is, when we say eat real food, it sounds as though we're telling people this is your responsibility. And I'm wondering how people can do that if they live in a food desert where the nearest place that they have to buy food has nothing but ultra-processed food in it. Terry, I couldn't agree with you more. All right. And I will tell you that this is what I have devoted my retirement to is fixing the food supply for just this reason. So I don't disagree with you. You're exactly right. And you have put your finger on the single biggest problem we have in America. Okay. The social disparity of food availability and procurement. I don't disagree. I am with you. I am for it. I'm, I'm totally there. In fact, we have started a nonprofit called Eat Real to get real food into K-12 in all public schools in the United States. Now, right now, if you go into any schoolroom cafeteria, what are they serving? They're serving pizza, they're serving chicken nuggets, and those were you know, frozen bags delivered by Cisco or Guggenheim or McDonald's itself. And that's what they call lunch. Take a look at the National School Breakfast Program. What is a National School Breakfast Program breakfast look like? It's a bowl of Fruit Loops and a glass of orange juice. That's 41 grams of sugar. The American Heart Association says the maximum for children should be 12 grams of sugar per day. That's 41 grams of sugar for breakfast, and you still have the whole day left. So think about what that's doing to your mitochondria. Think about what that's doing to your metabolism. Think what that's doing to your brain. We have to solve that. Now, how do we solve that? Well, we are working on that. We have developed a business model that actually works to be able to do this for K-12. to Now, how do we do that for supermarkets? Well, one thing we have to do is we have to educate the public, which we're doing right now, as to why this is important. Because if people think that ultra-processed food is somehow better because it's cheaper, because price matters more than food quality, you know, then we'll never get it solved. Because after all, why would a supermarket stock real food if nobody would buy it because they're addicted to the ultra-processed food? Because after all, sugar is addictive. So this is a very large uh, topic 
with a lot of twists and turns. And what we have to do is we have to bring all stakeholders to the table all at once. And the only group that can do that is Congress. And unfortunately, they have been completely um, silent and uh, uh, absent on this issue. Dr. Lustig, you have stated fix the food first. Let's see if these drugs, and now we're talking about the GLP-1 agonists, let's see if these drugs are actually better or even comparable to real food. That study hasn't been done yet. No, it hasn't. Um, I'm not sure it ever will be done, but it needs to be done. So here's the question. Ozempic, Wagovi, Manjaro, okay? Yes, they cause you to eat less. They cause you to eat less of whatever it is you're eating. They cause you to eat less ultra-processed food. But ultra-processed food is a mitochondrial toxin, so you've still got the problem. What if you instead didn't consume a mitochondrial toxin? What if you consumed real food? What if your mitochondria actually made enough ATP? Maybe, just maybe, you would reduce your total food intake. And in fact, we already know the answer to that. It would. And if you reduced your total food intake, maybe then you would lose fat and not muscle because you were eating real food and you were getting enough protein in order to be able to do it. And maybe... You could solve this without medicine, without $1,300 a month, and actually solve your metabolic health issue. And let's say the entire country did that because they actually reduced their total sugar consumption down to USDA guidelines. So instead of paying $2.1 trillion a year for, uh, for these drugs, we would save four trillion dollars a year in healthcare costs. Now, which is a better deal? Well, I go for real food as a better deal, no. just on the basis of dollars and cents, but also Absolutely. on the basis of of uh, overall health. So as long as people think that ultra processed food is food, we're not going to solve this problem. So that is the question. Is ultra-processed food food? Is it? Well, if you go to the dictionary and you look up the word food, here's what you find. This is the direct quote from the dictionary. Substrate that contributes either to growth or burning of an organism. 100% agree. That is a perfect definition. Growth or burning. Okay. Does ultra-processed food contribute to burning? I've already told you. It inhibits mitochondrial function. So it, it inhibits burning. Does it contribute to growth? My colleague, Dr. Afrat Monsenigo Ornan at Hebrew University, Jerusalem, did this study. And she actually showed that ultra-processed food inhibits bone growth. It inhibits uh, cortical bone growth. It inhibits trabecular bone growth. It inhibits organ growth. What it does do is it hijacks growth for cancer cells and actually helps promote cancer formation. So in both cases, ultra-processed food neither promotes growth nor burning. In fact, it actually does the opposite. So 
is ultra-processed food? Food. Answer, no. If it's not food, it's poison. Dr. Lustig, you mentioned that the GLP-1 agonists, the, the drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy and Mon Monjuro, can cause gastroparesis. We would just call that stomach paralysis. And That's a good way to put it. This is a big issue for anesthesiologists and surgeons. Tell us why. Well, if you uh, have a paralyzed stomach and the food doesn't go down into the next part of the intestine called the duodenum, then when you try to put someone to sleep, they will vomit and they will aspirate into their lungs. And there's a really good chance that they'll end up in the ICU or possibly even death. Not a good thing to do. The last time we talked with you, Dr. Lustig, you said that drug effectiveness in general is much lower than I think most people realize. So we talked about statins and the number yes. needed to treat. We've yes. talked about diabetes drugs. And I remember, I'm so old, I remember the UGDP trial of tolbutamide. But nobody yes. else remembers Nobody that. else remembers that, but maybe you I, do. It was the UK PDS study, the UK Prospective Diabetes right, study. That was the other I, study. And so I just want your big picture view of our medications and the fact that a surprising number of them, especially some of the really pricey ones, are not as effective as most people think. So, Joe, Terry, read my lips. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> We're on radio. Um, the medications that we have for chronic metabolic disease are treating the symptoms, not the disease. They're treating the symptoms, not the disease. So let's take that apart. Statins. Statins treat LDL. The LDL is not the disease. The LDL is the symptom of the disease. The disease is the metabolic dysfunction in the liver that's driving the triglycerides. You're treating the LDL. Wrong target. So primary prevention for heart disease with statins, you get a total increase in longevity of four days. Now, secondary prevention, so if you've already had a heart attack and you're now on a statin to prevent a second heart attack, there, statins are actually working because you have actually chosen a, you know, a select group. You have, you know, you have uh, found the appropriate uh, selection criteria for treating with statin. But for primary prevention across the board, four days. Okay, let's take number two, oral hypoglycemics. Okay, they treat blood glucose. The glucose goes down. The high glucose is the symptom of the problem. It is not the problem. What is the problem? The problem is the insulin resistance, and the oral hypoglycemics do not treat that. In fact, the insulin stays high, and because that insulin is growing, your cardiovascular tree, um, increasing vascular smooth muscle proliferation in your coronary arteries, and also increasing uh, glandular uh, growth, 
you're at risk for heart disease and cancer anyway, and you die just the same. And that's what the UK PDS showed, is you can do intensive therapy for diabetes and you'll still die at the same time. Let's take number three, antihypertensives for blood pressure. You are not treating the, you are only treating the symptom, not the cause. Yes, it is true that blood pressure is a problem, okay? And it is necessary to get blood pressure down. But what is the cause of that blood pressure? It is endothelial dysfunction. So you can vasodilate, you can reduce that blood pressure, but the endothelial dysfunction is still there. And so you're still going to end up with chronic vascular tree disease. So in each case, we are targeting the wrong pathology. So in order to fix these big metabolic disease problems, we have to fix the cause, not the result. We have to go upstream. We have to find the root cause, and we are not doing that. The root cause of all of these is the metabolic dysfunction associated with metabolic syndrome, associated with insulin resistance, associated with fatty liver disease. And the only way to fix that, there is no medicine, the only way to fix that is real food. Dr. Rob Lustig, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Oh, it is my pleasure always, Joan Terry. You've been listening to Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Lustig is the author of several books, including his most recent, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. This is the second of a two-part series on recent medications prescribed to treat obesity, Last week, we explored this same topic with a physician who has a different perspective on these drugs. You can listen to the entire interview on your preferred podcast app or at peoplespharmacy.com. Right now, we offer you a little sample from last week's show. Dr. Jamie Yard is Professor of Epidemiology and Prevention at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He is also President-Elect of the Obesity Society. Dr. Yard, I am wondering if you can give us a, a quick rundown on the pros and the cons of these medicines, because we do understand that any medicine is going to have some potential side effects. Sure. So the pros, let's start there. I think the main benefits that people notice are that process of losing weight is much easier. They feel less consumed by food. They feel more in control of food. Um, the sense of fullness, that signal is much stronger. So a lot of my patients would say it felt like a suggestion before maybe to stop eating. Now it, it's a very clear, emphatic, yeah, I'm done. So it, it really is a, a benefit in terms of helping people reset how they interact with food from that perspective. I think the other benefit that we're starting to see in some of the newer data, newer trials, is that this is, for example, the top line results. We don't have the full peer-reviewed results of the cardiovascular outcome trial from semaglutide, but it showed that treating people with known heart disease had a, led to a reduction of 20% in major adverse cardiovascular events. That's life-saving. That's what that means. So 
we're, we're starting to see the potential for treating obesity as being a primary way to help improve longevity, um, decrease adverse cardiovascular outcomes. Um, so more to come on that area. Now on the cons, I think the side effects of any drug are, are going to be important for people to understand. And these drugs certainly have a well-documented side effect profile that typically includes GI-related side effects. So by, by that, I mean related to the stomach and intestines and the gut. And so most commonly, people will experience nausea. So I tell patients, most of my patients will experience nausea, probably 8 out of 10. It's usually mild and transient. And as we gradually increase the dose, um, people tend to be able to manage that nausea and their body sort of gets accustomed to that. I think the other main side effects are related to uh, diarrhea or constipation. Some people will experience that. And again, that may be dose dependent, uh, but there are ways to mitigate all of these types of side effects. Some people just won't tolerate the medication and, and just won't be able to, to take it. And that's okay. We have other uh, anti-obesity medications that can be useful in part of a treatment plan. I think the other big con for most people is cost in access to these medications. Uh, while they can be incredibly helpful, um, they're only helpful to the extent that people can get them. That was Dr. Jamie Ard of Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He's president-elect of the Obesity Society. We urge you to listen to both experts so you and your doctor can weigh the pros and cons together. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wodarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with the People's Pharmacy. Today's show is number 1,362. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. You can always email us, radio, at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also have regular access to information about our weekly podcast, so you can find out ahead of time what topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.